Hi, this is Joe Satriani on The Rock Show with Andy Fox on GTFM.
Welcome back to our two of this week's rock show here on GTFM, BCFM, Rock Radio UK and Breeze 97.7. And then, of course, was classic tracking from Joe Santriani from his uh, second album, no, third album, called Flying in a Blue Dream, and that was the title track. Joe Santriani began teaching guitar to the likes of Steve Vai, Kirk Hammack, Alex Skolnick, Larry Lalonde, Andy Timmons and many more. He released his first album in 1986 and followed it with 1987's Surfing with the Alien, his first album which charted. The track Always With Me, Always With You was nominated for a Grammy Award not once but twice. In 1988, he toured with Mick Jagger's solo band and briefly joined Deep Purple to tour after the departure of Richie Blackmore in 1993. Satriani has made a total of 17 mainly instrumental solo albums from 1986 to 2022, with a new 18th album, The Elephants of Mars, out this week on Ear Music. He's toured with the G3 guitar extravaganza, played on albums with Alice Cooper, Blois the Cult, and supergroup Chickenfoot, alongside Sammy Hager, Mike Anthony, and Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Chad Smith. I recently spoke to Joe Satriani via Zoom from New York, his home in New York, and started off by asking him about his weird and wacky titles. Yes, certainly. Um... It started with a song I was writing that just happened to have this sound that reminded me of some sort of alien elephant, uh, gigantic snorting thing that wasn't something you'd find on the plains of Africa or something, you know, something extra special. And um, I created this sort of mini song with it, and I had sent it to my producer who said uh, that, that he loved it and he thought we should try to expand upon it somehow and uh so i got to work you know sort of uh building a larger uh song for it but as i usually do i also have to think about the the meaning of the song and i developed this science fiction story about the future where um the earth scientists terraform mars and they turn it into a beautiful lush garden planet uh and they get busy mining it for the Earth's inhabitants and for profit, of course. and uh, But unbeknownst to them, they created uh, a race of sentient, gigantic elephants. And they start to make themselves known to the colonists there, and they join forces to create, a, to revolt against the corporations of Earth to try to keep Mars a brand new, pristine garden planet and to stop the corporations of Earth from just tearing it apart uh, and using it for mining, you know. And um, so I thought, oh, this is funny. This is a really good story. And I, I called my writing partner at Satchtoons, Ned Evett, and we got busy really writing this and doing the script. And, and uh, Ned is fantastic at character development and writing prequels and sequels. <laughs> so by the time I brought it to the band, I could tell them the whole story behind it. And... Uh, it helped give us all a kind of artistic license to try some crazy things. You, um, you must have some crazy dreams. <laughs> I do, but I think what's crazier is when I'm awake, which is really more frightening, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but yeah, it worked out great because this album's got a lot of uh, collaboration on it, which was uh, you know, afforded to us uh, by the fact that we weren't 
you know, packed into a studio at a very tight schedule. You know, it's not like it was like, you know, 11 to 8 every day for 10 days, get it done and go home, you know. Uh, And so everyone could relax a bit, record 10 times as much as they'd done in the past, and then send it off to myself and, and Eric for our comments and whether, you know, decide whether or not we could use their different ideas about stuff. And this really just elevated the whole artistic quality of the album um, because we weren't rushed uh, by either the clock or the calendar. And you were doing it, obviously, in the pandemic. Yeah, so I was all by myself, uh, (sighs) never to be ridiculed by my band members for making mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, or for getting overly emotional when playing sad songs. And, um, you know, the I think that, uh, you know, like Brian Beller on bass, he could finally do the bass after the drums, which is what he was always, you know, hoping to do. And uh, you know, uh, Kenny was able to give us 10 completely different performances on the drums rather than having to settle on one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is very often the case when you're in a, an expensive studio working by the hour. Um, and then, of course, Eric and I could work together as arrangers on the material for months and just entertain the craziest ideas and not worry about trying to fit into any particular genre or media or anything you know um, this is what this sort of uh, seclusion sort of afforded us in a way it it, it sort of uh, enhanced the artistic experience of working on the album
Africa Sahara is not actually about the desert, is it? I heard you said it's about somebody going through a bit of a spiritual crisis, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking this one day that this guy imagined in like a little movie in my head and he is, you know, he's feeling so empty inside, like he doesn't know where his sense of self is. And he's, you know, at the the worst part of being feeling lonely. And he also physically is in a place where there's nobody and he can't figure out where everybody went. And as he learned, and in, in particular, for some reason, I imagine like the streets of New York City completely abandoned and tattered and he is searching for an answer. And he, I actually wrote lyrics because I, I wanted uh, my keyboard player to sing the song and, uh, and, and recorded the piece expecting that to happen. Uh, but I think I overdid it with the lyrics and I'm not that good at <laughs> writing mm-hmm. lyrics. So I think I probably frightened the whole band into that whole idea. But eventually uh, Eric said, you know, how about, you know, turning it into an instrumental? Because he loved everything about the song and I had already recorded the solo bits and, and the rhythms and, and everything. Uh, and so I had, to, I had to spend a few weeks rewriting it because, you know, an instrumental melody needs an entirely different set of kind of like rules to make it work. You, you can't just, you can't just remove the words, you know what I mean? It just doesn't work that way. So, but once I got that together, I, I, I still use that imagery of my head of a kind of, uh, a, a, a John Lennon figure screaming these lyrics and these words and going back and forth between deep, quiet reflection and and then just screaming out his sense of loneliness, you know, and that's why the guitar keeps going back and forth between those those elements. There's beautiful, clean melodies, and then there's these screaming guitar bits, you know, mm. uh, and all the time there's that pounding beat uh, from Kenny and Brian that is supposed to illustrate him as he's walking down the streets, endlessly searching, but ultimately. I'm saying he might as well be in the Saharan desert all by himself because he can't find anything. There's nothing. Mm. Just endless sand. <laughs> and, and on, a, on a similar note, um, I mean, Faceless, which I think is a beautiful track, um, is is about not being acknowledged or recognized for what or who you are. Is yes. that right? Am I, am I right in that? Yes, I, I think you you said that way better than I did in, on my video explanation. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was a complicated uh, set of emotions based on um, the feeling that people get when they're not recognized for their true self, and and it might be that one person that you really need to have recognize your your true self or it might be your feeling towards that society that you, the one that you live in your community or the world perhaps is not seeing you and or, or maybe even your your whoever you think your god is is not recognizing you you know what i mean it really is hmm. feeling like you for some you know you have an identity but why can't anybody see it hmm. and and so uh, yeah it's a, it's it's a, it, it there were songs on the on the album that were difficult to embrace because 
you, you know, you have to pry open those parts of uh, your emotions that perhaps you've been taught to lock down, uh, you know, and and to to be strong and stoic about. And uh, but uh, it, that's not that doesn't work for musicians and artists. <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite for us. We have to pry everything open and and deal with it and then and and then somehow put it into a musical or visual uh representation one of my um favorites is e 10th street new york city 1973 now i don't i don't really know why i like that one but i thought it was had shades and i'm only saying shades of a bit of a steely dan vibe to it (laughs) yeah probably the the uh, Fender maybe. Rhodes. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, beautiful playing by Ray Thistlethwaite. Um, well, that first of all, that address, East 104th Street uh, in New York City, between 1st and 2nd Avenue is where uh, my father was born and raised and where I used to go to visit my relatives every Sunday. And, you know, as a kid, uh, New York City was just so much fun, you know, being out on the street in the stoops, hanging out with all those people. Uh, I grew up about 30 minutes away in the suburbs where it was much quieter. Um, and, uh, you know, my relatives were uh, uh, Italian immigrants and, and it was just very colorful and, and wonderful. But as I got older, you know, I sort of came of age in the 70s and I started to realize the reality of that part of New York City and how rough it was. And it, it kind of coincided with New York City's decline, uh, you know, into eventual bankruptcy, uh, um, the craziness of drugs and energy crisis and inflation. It was also the time when I had the best time of my life hanging out, going to concerts in the city, uh, being a young musician, playing shows in the city, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, just becoming a grown-up slowly, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to pick a time. It was really hard to pick one date, but I kind of just put my finger down on the calendar and said, okay, 1973, that's to create that as a whole, uh, to sum up the feeling of that, the what was happening as well musically, because I was a rock and roll kid, but I also really liked jazz, and I grew up listening to my parents' jazz and classical and all the music that my older siblings listened to in the 60s, rock and roll and British Invasion. And um, and it's all sort of uh, represented by this late night jam in New York City uh, where everyone's sort of laid back <laughs> and just doing a freeform kind of musical expression. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's like a... The, the title needs to be 10 times as long to try to describe the way I was feeling about it.
heard today that the um, your tour has been moved now to 2023. Yes. Um, is that is that because of the COVID situation? I suppose. Yeah, um, we had the uh, you know uh, unlucky um, situation where our tour was booked for the spring, uh, early spring, and um, each time there were. Um, there were spikes in in the pandemic in the all these well whatever 15 or 17 countries we were going to and the restrictions in these countries were not similar at all no. and posed a, a great danger to the economic viability of the tour uh you know we got stopped it was it would be devastating uh, and we didn't know like where would we get stopped in bulgaria in spain and in, in uh, you know helsinki who knew what was going to happen but either way after running the numbers it it would be devastating uh and it was inevitable because we uh you know we don't have our own private plane we do we do nine weeks and we share a tour bus (laughs) Uh, and and i've got a crew as well and a bunch of truck drivers and it's just you know it's my responsibility to keep everybody healthy as well everyone's supposed to get home after the gig so uh, we just couldn't each time we just could not get enough consensus from all of the cities and countries that we would be able to continue if one person got sick. Um, and uh, and because we it's nine weeks long, you know, not like a two week tour where, you know, the, the economic fallout would be limited. Um, it, it was just too devastating uh, a thought to bear that that, you know, we'd get stopped. So once again, uh and I have to thank our promoters and our venue operators in Europe for allowing us to do this once again. But we have been assured that just about 95% of all the dates in the exact same venues with the exact same tickets will be all be honored and will happen in 2023. Cool. Let's hope so then. Okay. Um, now, I always ask this to my interviewees, uh, especially if I've had a longevity of a career. And yours is, well, it's gone 36 years of recordings <laughs> on the Joe yeah. Satriani. Is that right, Joe? Uh, 36 years of your recording since the first I, album? I think so. Yes, I guess it would be, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I appreciate you did stuff before that. So I always say, do you have a specific high and a specific low in that career? Oh, wow. Um, well, I always say the, the specific high is... is the most recent album (laughs) really is because especially when you know it's like now we're just like on the eve of releasing it it's just so exciting you know there's nothing more exciting than than just getting all set up to release uh, a big batch of new music to your fans and and so i i just love that that's why i do it you know i think the low points come when um uh perhaps um you know, when you when you lose those people that you've worked with for such a long time, and and uh, and you have to say goodbye, and you know it's it's inevitable. It's just part of life. But th- those are the worst parts, by far. Yeah. And unfortunately, the longer you live, the the more you say goodbye. Of course, you know? yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, if I could suggest um, possibly a high for you, and that must be playing on the various stages that you've played. 
I mean, you've played all over the world and with some great people in the G3 project and, and mm. obviously with the guys in Chicken Foot and stuff. Yeah. You know, you must have had some great times playing live with those people. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, and you never know, like, where that one show is going to be that it, that just turns out so totally different, you know. I, I remember our first show that we did in Mumbai, India, leading up to it, it was so unorganized and in such disarray that we just didn't think anything was going to happen. We just thought we, the whole thing would collapse, including the stage <laughs> that had just been built in the middle of a cricket field. Uh, but once we start, we started playing Flying in a Blue Dream and we hear 40,000 uh, inhabitants of, of Mumbai all singing the melody of the of my guitar melody. And it was just so profound. Uh, I can remember when we were opening for ACDC uh, in Lisbon and we were so certain we were going to be pelted with everything (laughs) 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 because they'd want us to leave the stage immediately so that ACDC could take the stage. And instead, when we played Always Always With Me, Always With You, they all lit up their lighters. This is before cell phones and all the, you know, and they all sang along to the guitar and it was wow, you know. Uh, you remember those moments uh, um, really great I mean yeah. and then the crazy moments I mean our chicken foot playing in London and and Chad deciding he was just going to destroy his drums at the, <laughs> at the at the end of the show and he winds up hitting Sam with a with a floor tom I mean there was just some crazy moments that happened uh uh, just um, you know, playing with Mick Jagger, Deep Purple, just course, yeah, yeah. dreams come true. You know, uh, just really fantastic. Um, I must ask you while we're on the subject of Chicken Foot, is there likely to be anything else? Because I know uh, Sammy would like to do it and Chad would like to do it, um, but it's you know your schedules, I suppose. Yeah, um, uh, mine are usually a bit uh, more open. Um, you know, Chad gets locked into the Chili Pepper thing, and, and they're about to launch another world tour, so yeah. and put out a new album. I'm not really sure. So yeah, we're we're in contact, and and they're putting out. They've got a, a new a new album, The Sarko, which is really great, and that should come out in a few months. Um, so everyone's having a good time <laughs> with their day jobs right now. So I'm not really sure. Um, but it, if it did happen, it, it would have to be sometime next year. Okay. Now, I appreciate you're just about to launch this new album, The Elephants and Mars. But did I read somewhere that you've already got the music enough for a new album? Yeah, we we uh, we were very... Uh, productive, I suppose. Busy. Productive and busy, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, I started out with the idea early on when Shapeshifting came out and the first part of the tour was, was you know, postponed. We didn't think it was going to last long. So I thought, well, let's do a vocal album and an instrumental album as uh, uh, supplemental records to Shapeshifting. And we'll give them away as we hit the road, you know. But, of course, that didn't happen. And I wound up with these extra songs and then when I realized that the, the next album was going to have to be a whole new album, I took the vocal songs and I sent most of them to Ned. And I said, Ned, how about we use some of these, but we do them all kind of acoustic. So Ned and I wrote this kind of more acoustic album, and it's just kind of sitting there. <laughs> 
I'm not sure what we're going to do with it. And then, of course, yeah, there's always an equal amount of instrumentals that didn't get on the most recent, uh, the upcoming release. Uh, but that's normal. There's, you know, I've always got a backlog of stuff and, oh, you know, new, new little riffs and scraps I'm working on. was our chat with Joe Satriani with the new album Elephants of Mars we played the title track to start off with and then East 104th Street in New York City 1973 and that final track there is called Sahara all from the new album Elephants of Mars so now on ear music he's a very popular uh, guitar player a lot of people like his stuff. He's done 18 albums in total and sold about 40 million records, which is pretty damn good going for an instrumental player. And his shows always get sold out with uh, people who love guitar music. Music. 